0: Greetings, and welcome to DWR, Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric, a space for informal conversations around research and practice in the field at the university level, a place inclusive for curious novices, blossoming scholars, and seasoned academics to consider and share their inquiries, experiences, and passions surrounding writing and rhetoric. We are your hosts, Professors Megan Faulkner and Nicholas Gardiakos, with the University of Central Florida. Thank you for joining us. Now let's get this conversation started. Today, we are joined by Dr. Martha Brenkel, full professor and the interim first year writing director here at UCF. Dr. Brenkel teaches first year writing and rhetorical theory. Her scholarship has been published in multiple disciplinary journals, including the Journal of Basic Writing, CCC the WPA Journal, and Pedagogy and Culture. She writes and publishes poetry and fiction, winning the Central Florida United Arts Award for Poetry in 2000 and Orlando Poet Laureate Finalist in 2021. Street Angels, her first published novel, was nominated for a Lambda Award and a Triangle Award. She has also co-authored an award-winning screenplay turned film titled Untold. Her poetry manuscript, Hard Letters and Folded Wings, was published in October 2019. You can see a full listing of her substantial publications and accolades in her profile on the department website. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a, That's a lot of accolades and publications. Yeah, but... It- I worked hard to get them, oh, so yes, of course. Of course <laughs> So I want
1: more. I'm very greedy that way. No, I'm like really
0: Well, there's a trap in academia. I feel like um, you know, is it to produce something is such an amount of time and energy, but it also becomes this um like lifestyle almost where Mm -hmm. you're constantly like what is what am I working on what is the next thing and and not even necessarily due to external pressures I think a lot of it is those are internal pressures we put on ourselves it just becomes like a part of our lifestyle Um, so I can see where there's always that what are we doing next mentality
1: yeah most of us are here because we put a lot of pressure on ourselves in even early school even in elementary school Mm -hmm. how to have an A how to know the answer first one to raise your hand and I mean... We've got a whole university full of people like this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I tell people, I think the first um, moment of feeling out of my element in grad school, when you're an undergrad, you're typically one of the few brightest in the class. Like that's, you're, you're an overachiever. Mm-hmm. That's how you get to where you are. And then you get to grad school where everyone was the brightest in their class. And you suddenly are in a whole new arena of these people that were all always the best and brightest. And it's it takes a moment to adjust to being in that different dynamic. It really does.
1: Yeah. I I can remember an undergrad um, when I was getting my Ph.D. at Lehigh University who came into me crying one day and she said, I was valedictorian of my class. I was this. I was that. And everyone here is just like me. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. I said, yeah, that's what it's like when you go to college. But mm-hmm. it's a good
0: thing. Yeah, it is. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences here at UCF? Um, I know that this is not the first in- institution you've been a participant of. Um, so basically, how long have you been here? Um, I'm going in, This is my 24th year. Wow. So you've seen some changes. Big
1: changes. Um, when I came here, we had 24,000 students. And that felt huge to me because I came from a college that had like 5,200 So it was quite a change. I kept thinking, this is a little city. This isn't. And I remember having to learn how to schedule meetings. So I gave myself time to walk to another (laughs) building. Hmm. I mean, it was that crazy.
0: Yeah. So I know that, as we already established, UCF was not your first academic institution. How has your time at UCF specifically shaped you as a professional? the environment, the climate here?
1: Um, I've learned to be a whole lot tougher, if that makes sense. Um, I've learned how to work smart. I mean, I'm still working hard, but you can't accomplish all the things you're expected to accomplish at UCF and not work smart. Mm. Um, I like these students a lot, if that makes sense. I mean, I think they're wonderful. Um I especially like the first-year students. They are so eager and ready to go and ready to learn. And they don't have that little editor in their heads that tells them, oh, don't say that. It might be stupid, right? And so they say things. And sometimes they say the most profound things. And I'll go, wow, I never looked at that that way. So, yeah, the, the, the students are wonderful. They really, really are. Um, it's been a long haul, you know, coming here and being openly gay. Um, I think I was probably the only openly gay lesbian on campus because I used to constantly get, "Can I interview you for my class and And I finally said to one teacher, "Am I the only lesbian you know I can't be' <laughs> <laughs> Um, and plus, you don't like to speak for everybody yeah, in your group. I pressure. mean, oh, you can't, yeah. but you can't because everyone's experiences are different. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was tough. And until we had um, sexual orientation into the anti-discrimination clause, I was always walking on the edge. Um, I was told by many people in administration, you can't tell your students you're gay. You can't not please don't. You can't tell your students you're gay. Of course, I did anyway. But and I'm glad I did because I would get these little notes like, thank you for being so matter of fact about your life. I feel better about being gay now. And if I can do that for one student, it's all worth it.
0: Absolutely while there it's the flip side of that pressure of being the the representative right mm-hmm. is that you is that you are then the representation which matters right. to a, lo- a lot of people and i can't agree with you more about our incoming freshmen i'm always um i'm always like renewed in in the fall semester because they were they were coming from being the top in their class and so they feel you know a sense of both um what am i doing this is college but i also was always really good at being a student and they don't have that inner, inner editor that you were talking about they also um they're not jaded yet Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, they're still excited to be here. And I do love those moments where I had never considered a reading in that way, or they bring something new to a class discussion. And, you know, I, I like to be that champion for that generation amongst friends and colleagues, because I feel like there's, the tale of time is always, oh, these kids today, right? I mean, I was in a high school production of Bye Bye Birdie, which is set in the 50s. And there's a whole thing about these kids today and that and the Ed Sullivan Show, you know, and it's, it's never ending. So I do love that we have that chance. And as writing instructors, we have a glimpse into their lives. It's very different than many other professors. But I had to echo that, that I love this time of year with our freshmen coming in. But if we can pivot a little bit, because you're teaching a, a new course this semester. Can we talk yes, about that a little bit? Sure we can. It is queer rhetoric and queering writing. Yes. So it's not just new to the department, but you also built this class, correct? Yes. I actually
1: asked to teach this class 24 years ago and was told no. I was told no probably five times. Wow. It never got out of the department. One time it got to the college committee. And then I just kind of gave up. So I thought, what the heck, I'll ask again. I mean, you know, we had a nice 10-year break from it. And... Our chair said, yes, I want you to teach that. And it's actually been a lot of fun so far. And everybody's worried that nobody would take the course. I mean, I have 30 students in the course. So.
2: Wow. wow.
1: Yeah, I wasn't going to turn
0: anybody down. Yeah, that's fantastic. I had the um, the pleasure of looking over your syllabus um, which you know it's always so fun to read a syllabus, but I love in the course definition you start out with a definition of writing. You say writing is both a practice and a process of critical thinking and communicating to others. And I think it's so important that as writing instructors, writing professionals, writing academics, we do give students a concrete understanding of what do we what are we calling writing because um, it's not, it's not just sitting at a keyboard, right? There's so much there's so much else happening that we need to consider when we're studying writing. So i really enjoyed that you um that you set up that expectation. So with that definition in mind, how are you applying the ideas of of looking at queer rhetorics and queering writing with that definition in mind? Well, the it's writing to disrupt the status quo. It's writing
1: maybe not in the usual linear fashion. Um, It's experimenting. Um, It's sort of a way of looking at the world and then saying, well, what if it was like this instead? Um, So there is a lot of sort of what I call critical imagination involved. Um, And you also have to question how language works. Like, is there only boy and girl? What else is there? Does every word have to have its opposite? And that's actually how we were, at least that's how I was educated. And I can remember taking, you know, IQ tests and they'd go night and you were supposed to go day, <laughs> you know, and, um, and it's questioning all those things. It's breaking
0: everything up into little, littler and littler parts. Is the course now what you imagined it would have been when you first thought of it 24 years ago?
1: No. How is it's it It's really not. When I thought of it 24 years ago, I had a lot more theory in there. You also have to remember at that point, queer rhetorics really was in its very beginnings and it wasn't quite named yet. And so putting it together was very experimental in a lot of ways. I mean, now we have a whole field called queer rhetorics and I get asked to um, read a Tenure applications from other universities for people that are in that area. I just did one two weeks ago. Um, And so it's getting it's gotten very firmly established. But that back then it wasn't. And it's really hard to find the right balance of theory and practice when it's brand new. And there's usually at the beginning just so much theory and not enough work on praxis. So I feel like right now it's actually better than it would have been.
2: I noticed one of the um, assignments that you have students do is uh, defining queer rhetoric or defining, you know, and in that, you know, it made me wonder, you know, how do you think about, you know, students in this, in the practice part of it, like encouraging them to, you know, maybe go for those uh, uh, experiments that you were talking about and and playing with language. Um, It seems to me, I think sometimes students tend to be a little hesitant sometimes of things that they think might be risky um, in that way when when it's in the context of a class. And so I was just curious, reading some of those things. Like, um, how do you think about those? You know, uh, when you're when you're asking students to approach these topics. And I, and what I think is so great about it is that you know they'll sort of leave with that experience of having defined it for themselves mm-hmm. or, or, you know, taking the theory in combination and coming up with a definition uh, and, and participating in it. Um, and so I wonder, uh, you know, I, I know this is the first time you're doing the class, but um, how's that going or, or, or how do you, what's your sense of, of that from I the students? I
1: think it's going pretty well. Um, and we're dealing with, you know, the current climate that we live in now, and what that means. And we'll eventually... I have um, someone from Equality Florida who's going to come and talk to the class, which will probably only be just me on Zoom, but then I'll put it up. <laughs> um, you know, we, we have to deal with all the new bills that Florida has put together and really look at them. What do they say? What don't they say? And then my next thing is, okay, what do you want them to say? And And that, to me, is the big leap. It's not just taking things apart and being looking at them critically. It's also, if this is what we have and I don't like it, where should we go? Um, I used to ask it as, what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world like this? Or do you want something different? And um, trying to get them to see that language has so much power. And how you label people and what opportunities are open to them makes a huge difference.
0: Yeah, I, I started thinking while um, Nick was asking that question, you know, the the potential for experimentation in form in a class like this, where you can take things and and flip them from what's, what's the typical expectation. And I hadn't even considered the larger worldview of what might these theories and practice outside of the classroom, you know, how might they play into our understanding of the world around us. So, we just said we sang the praises of our freshmen a moment ago, mm-hmm. and now this is a, this is a, a four thousand or three thousand level class. Um, four thousand, four thousand level class. This is our our graduating seniors in theory. Um, do you see any difference between the four thousand level um, more more exposed to the world students than our incoming freshmen who still kind of are have a like you know rose colored mm-hmm. lenses on mm-hmm. about the college experience when when encountering these kinds of ideas. Um, they're
1: much more thoughtful. Um, I will say their discussion posts are amazing. They're very good at pulling things from their own lives or something they've seen or something from popular culture into their post, which is what I want them to do. So that makes me very, very happy. Um, and then we'll just see how it goes. I mean, it's only been—we're in the, what, fourth week? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, this um, this week we're talking about young adult literature and the importance of it. And then next week we're doing um, um, Foucault's History of Sexuality, just the introduction and the first two chapters because it's too much to do the whole thing.
0: Um, you could do a semester just on those I alone. Know, yeah, <laughs> I
1: know. And what I have them doing in the discussion post is their first post is they're um, a journalist interviewing Foucault. And I can put his picture up and everything. I said, <laughs> What kind of questions would you ask him about what you just read? What things did you find confusing? Um, And so they have to have three questions. And then the next post is to choose someone else's post and be Foucault Mm. and answer the question. I think it's actually going to be fun. Yeah, You know, Um, and what I like is I can do a lot of things like that as a way into very difficult theory and give them an opportunity to play with it where it's really low
0: stakes. Yeah. So I always default to like a new historist approach to looking mm-hmm. at texts. Um, I feel like you can't you can't look at a text without considering the context of what mm-hmm. it's and what it's constructed. So do you feel that our students today still can have the same access to the ideas that Foucault or do you think Foucault would understand what the questions are given our context today? I know it's a lot of supposition, but do you feel like the theories stand alone and that they're timeless? No. Not at all. Um, but I do think there are a few
1: things that end up in the canon because they were the first to do that. And Foucault is really interesting to me because philosophers don't think he's a philosopher and historians won't recognize him as an historian. And yet he does both. Um, but still, you'll get told that. You know, he's not really a philosopher. He's not really an historian. And so it gives them a chance to think, well, I'm not really this either. So let me play. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, a lot of it is all about playing and trying something new and seeing what you come up with. But I, I hate to say that any author is, you know... <laughs> <laughs> like timeless, because it's not something I've grasped onto. But I do think that there are some pieces that even though they're older, are really worth reading. And that's one of them.
2: Yeah, and it sounds like a great activity exercise in what I find with students sometimes is they're, um, you know, a uh, uh, I don't know if it's reverence for respect for like texts where they don't want to play with them or, you know, they they see them as like one way information that they're there to absorb um, as content and not sort of ask questions of or, you know, interrogate or use themselves, you know, to sort of elevate them, you know, in that conversation. You know, in 1102, I try to get students to do that a little bit because I know that's something that, you know, when they get to the 4000 level class, like professors are going to be asking them to do in, in engage. And so I think anytime you can have like fun ways of engaging students with tech so that not only the content of the text, but they start to view texts in a slightly different way, ones that they are sort of allowed to engage in, I think that can really kind of change, you know, their positioning of of themselves in their own writing.
1: Yeah. One of the things I always tell first-year students, first semester, is I say, there's no meaning in this text until you read it. It doesn't walk around with meaning. It's just words on paper. When you open it up and read it, that's when the meaning starts to happen, so I try to sort of let them see what their responsibility is as a reader. you know it's um well, actually, all of them tell me they can't watch television normally anymore because they're starting to question everything they see. Um,
0: well, that's good welcome I mean, to the good life <laughs> Yes, really um, when it, yeah when when pleasure reading has notes in the margins, like you know, yeah, you're part of the you're part of the mm-hmm. inner sanctum, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I love that, too, in terms of um, I don't know if agency is quite the right word, but even accessibility for students to interrogate those like those canonical ideas. I think one of the the hardest shifts, because it was for me and I see it with students, is putting yourself into the conversation with with texts that are so long. Um regarded as being you know the end- all be- all. You have the canon of of our uh, even like our rhetorical um, theorists. And so to to take that stake down where, um, they can interrogate it in a way that still respects the ideas, but also can can ask those questions and give them a way into the text instead of just I need to absorb this. This is the end all be all. You know, once I can regurgitate these ideas, then I'm then I'm a then I'm an academic theorist. Um, so I, I think that is important um, to allow them that step into the process of putting yourself into those academic conversations. Mm hmm. And the conversations aren't just academic. Mm-hmm. They're about our culture. They're about the society we live in right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe even more like rhetorical conversations as opposed to academic conversations. The questioning and, you know, what, what is happening here, the examination.
1: I actually read this interesting article yesterday. And one of the sentences in it was that the university is built on rhetoric we all practice it. And I thought, all right, because that's what I study. That's pretty good. Um, I'm sure people in the chemistry department wouldn't believe me, but (laughs) I mean, when you think about it, it really is. We Mm -hmm. have all these discourse communities that also have to talk to each other. We have an administration that needs to know how to talk to us, Mm -hmm. which is often a disaster, but we try. (laughs) Um, And so that idea that you know, your world is only there because you speak of the world. When you speak, you pull it into existence in a sense. Mm.
0: Isn't, that's almost Lacanian, isn't it? The well, it idea. is Lacanian. Yeah, yeah. It's also um, Friera. Yeah. I'm having to quickly try to remember the names of my theorists <laughs> I studied so long ago. Um, so in this queer rhetorics and queering writing, when we have this definition of writing in the syllabus and this expectation, um, and we're asking them to challenge these worldviews, both um, about the world around them and what they are bringing to the world in themselves. Are there any approaches to the writing process that you're hoping they're considering specifically that you're trying to direct them to, or is it just um, you know, open for interpretation?
1: Um, I actually, what well, I mean like the practice part, I, I actually make them Well, you're online. So double space the PDF, take a color and write in between, do interlinear notes almost like you're translating it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a way of getting into the text, um, you know, the same way that I used to write in pencil in the margins and all of that. But, it, but when they put it in color, it kind of makes a difference because then that becomes their color mm-hmm. and it becomes them. Mm-hmm. And so they start becoming a character almost in the piece <laughs> that they're reading, the character of interpreter. So that's, that's one of the things that I have them start with,
0: especially with something really difficult. Interpreter and interrogator. Yeah. Right. But my thought
1: is, you know, if you're not going to read something difficult, what's the point? Because why would I teach them something they already know? Yeah. Why would I spend time on it? You already know that.
0: Let's move on. Are there any other acts of writing, even if they're, um, you know, in in like academic constructions that you are hoping, or outside in the world that you're hoping they're they're looking at in terms of queering of writing? Um, well, we look a lot at memes.
1: Actually, I have making memes. We look at infographics. That's one of their their assignments. Um, we have a blog going in the class. Another another sort of way to write. Um, Their final project, they can do if they want to, a TED Talk. They don't have to, and they can tape themselves. Um, And what else did I give them? I tried to make them really creative so they'd have more fun with it. Um, um, They could actually, if they're thinking of teaching, they can do a class, you know, a a week's worth of curriculum. What would you teach? What would you have the students do, et cetera, if this was your topic? Um, and I think those kinds of things are more, more application. You know, to me, that's the, now that you know this, what do you know? Or what are you going to do with it? Um, I can remember a student here showing me some screensaver he had made. And it was, I found it horrifying. But it was a bunch <laughs> of cockroaches that just like covered the screen finally. And he goes, isn't that cool? And I went, what does it do? And he said, well, that's it. It's just a screensaver. I went, how much time did you spend on that? (laughs) Because to me, you know, I I want, and I guess it is entertaining for people, and that can be an application. But I was just like, oh, my God, (laughs) you know. Um, I can remember my youngest brother, when he was like four, his clock radio, he decided it was broken. Brings it downstairs, gives to the guy I was dating at the time and wanted him to fix it. So he took it apart, put it back together, and he, and he said, here you go. And Nick said, but that's all it does. <laughs> As if he, in his head,
0: he's still doing so much more.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: I love that inclusion of memes. Um, I use a lot of social media in 1101 and 1102. Actually, all my courses, I, I incorporate something to do because I think it's a literacy that is overlooked a lot. Very much so. But that our students are bringing to the table with a real strong skill set. Um, is there any other particular assignment or reading that you're excited to be delving into with them?
1: Well, we're actually going to read my friend Jonathan's, one of his memoirs, he's written a series of three. And it's really interesting. It's called Creep, A Sort of Apology. And He does sort of talk about his life and growing up as a gay man and those things. But in between are all these issues of rhetorical theory that he follows along. It's probably one of the most interesting memoirs I've ever read because it's not just straight narrative. Mm -hmm. It plays around all the time. And it's not long. So I'm hoping that they enjoy it. Mm. I'm I'm looking forward to at least talking about it.
0: Yeah. Are you going to invite him in?
1: Yes. Well, yeah, I was saying I'll probably have him on over Zoom because it's an online class. Um, And then whoever can be there can be there. And um, we'll talk about the book. And I'm hoping that some students will be there and ask him questions so he's not stuck with me the whole time. (laughs) We've known each other a long time. So, you know, (laughs) it will get too silly
0: if it's just Well, there'll be plenty to talk about. Yeah.
2: I had a question about, um, you know, projects that, that you have your students doing. I mean, you know it's it's always fun to see what they come up with when you give them a lot of, you know, free reign to pick, you know, their modalities, um, um, you know, creating things in, in digital spaces and things like that. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you see your role with a with a project like that with that freedom. I mean, you mentioned the example of the screensaver, which I think mm-hmm. is is really uh, a funny one because, you know, what I think, you know, the the challenge there is to Guide without giving too many sort of you know instructions about exactly what to do um, to allow that sort of freedom and exploration. But but then you also have to be kind of like a, a coach or or mm-hmm. a guide through that you know for their for their time for their resources and for them kind of applying the things that that they use in the course and the things that they read. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how how you see that role for yourself you know, with all the kind of experience that you've had over, over the, all the courses you've taught?
1: I usually think of myself as a facilitator. I don't own the knowledge. And I also think that knowledge gets made and remade and revised and remade all the time. And so their voices... And what they think of something is certainly as important as mine is. So I try not to be a teacher that's sort of the arbitrator of what is valuable to know and what is not valuable to know. Um, I've even taught um, composition where knowledge was the um, topic. And we actually talked about how do people come to these conclusions? Um, um, How do people decide what is valuable knowledge? Who decided that you should learn these foundational skills and why? Who made this world so that this is education? And then we spent the whole um, rest of the semester with their papers and everything else questioning education and questioning the way that they're taught. And it really got it really got good. I got a lot of good ideas out of them, what they would like.
2: I think it's something that, you know, the the more years that I teach, that's one of the things that I think keeps it so fresh for me, at least, that it's you know, allowing students to explore in that way or, or question things, they're always going to be changing, right? They're always going to be, you know, uh, the, the classes that come in. And so by being just that sort of like facilitator, um, I think of it as almost like a, a host for people to practice some of their ideas and observations a lot of times and and say, you know, um, find out what they think about things, find out, find out what, you know, when they question something, what, what claims do they come to? Make some claims of your own, you know, uh, in this class. And I think for me, that keeps it really fresh because it isn't just, you know, one way information or, you know, uh, content that they're cramming for. You know, a lot of times before class starts, students might be there. You know, the other day it was a chemistry test where they were all scurrying before class, like, you know, trying to remember <laughs> all the things that they know. And I'm just, I just walked in being like, Man, this class is so different <laughs> than yeah. that class that they're in. You know, yeah. um, there's no way to sort of cram for you know uh, uh, the types of classes that we do, or whatever, because it's 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 almost like an experience. You yes,
1: know? and it, it's practice, it's praxis, more than knowledge based or content based. Yeah, and I realize there's a the big drive in rhetoric and composition to. Prove that we have content and that it is somehow knowledge-based. And, and I don't care if students know what Kairos is. I just care if they recognize it when it happens. And if they can recognize those moments in their own lives, I'm not going to give them a quiz yeah. you know, on stasis theory or something. Yeah. But I want them to understand why the abortion argument can't go anywhere. you know. And that's why they need to know stasis theory. So they can look at it and maybe come up with a much better Argument, Yeah,
0: I I always use the analogy that I'm more like a Sherpa. Like I say, I'm a cheerleader and a guide to my students, but I really feel more like a Sherpa because I feel like I'm the person that packs all the stuff. I've, I've come up with the readings, I've come up with the assignments with with the with the journey in mind that we're going to go on together. And we're going to start together and there's going to be some parts that are easy and some parts that are challenging, but I'm there with them every step of the way and I'll give them everything I have to help them. But really, I mean, it is, it's is—it's the journey they're going on after they leave our classrooms. We only have them, you know, for 16 weeks, maybe two semesters or three if we're lucky. But um, yeah, I feel like more than cheerleader or guide, like we're the ones who know what to pack <laughs> and what to bring and how to try to best prepare them for the road ahead. Yeah, we can give them things to look at and think about
1: and things to read, think about. Um, I just don't want the journey to be like, Sherpas have already been there. That's what always cracks me up. I made it to the top and, you know, the person who climbed up gets all the all the accolades and all of that. But honestly, the Sherpas do that, you know, 10 times a month. I mean, this is like, <laughs> that's what they do for a living. Um, and so those are the kind of things i don't want to get overlooked yeah you know why did, why did the sherpa pack what the sherpa packed see and i would have students i would tell students why do you think i picked this article what do you think i thought you would learn
0: yeah yeah
1: and i love to say to them when they ask a question i love to say
0: i don't know let's do you, look it up yeah i have no idea yeah I become the notorious. Uh, I get eye rolls because everything that they give me is an answer, I respond with "Why? Why do you yeah. think that? Why? Why do you? Why do you consider it that way? Tell us more." And they <laughs> they love it and they hate it. You know, yeah. it's it's useful. But in the moment, it's like oh, again, can I just give you an answer and be done? No, this isn't the chemistry quiz. It's not. No. It's not that simple. No.
1: And I always say, hey, this is the one class where I actually care what you think. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had them draw like you know the outline of a brain, and then write in there all the things that they're thinking about. Oh wow! And I'll go, which one looks like a good idea for writing? And I have them circle it with colored pens. I'm really big into colored pens and origami paper and things yeah. like that. Yeah, it's a tactile yeah. thing, yeah. The time I felt probably the worst because my honors composition class, they've been working so hard. And I thought, just for fun, let's make origami cranes today. And then we can take them apart and write on the paper. They were so freaked out. What if mine doesn't come out good? Um, what if I fold the paper wrong? I mean, it wasn't fun. They had no fun. I felt horrible.
0: That's why they're honor students.
1: So I never did it again.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you gotta still have fun. No, I agree. So I never did I agree. it again. I agree, and I think that's a really valuable lesson for honor students that mm-hmm. it's okay if it doesn't come out all right every time. Exactly. Yeah.
2: I find origami to be stressful personally. As well.
1: <laughs> well, I love it. I like making things.
2: <laughs> Me too, but I was like, because I'm—I don't know—maybe it's the, the the detailed directions that I think. Look, someone wrote. Like all these detailed directions. You should be able to do this. And if like, you know, I'm constantly worried about where I'm going wrong, but maybe that's well there's maybe our, that's just a myth. There's <laughs>
0: your next course, the rhetoric of instructions.
2: Yeah.
1: Actually that is a whole
0: it is a whole thing and it's really <laughs> and interesting.
1: IKEA has been so successful because it's all pictures Lego, and because you can take a screw and put Mm -hmm. it on here okay that fits the picture that's screw k yeah
0: yeah um my son recently was gifted i learned later that i should have looked up the value of this thing my aunt found a complete lego set in her attic that was her son's and it was 30 years old She sent it to my son. We open it up. We build it. And then I Googled it, and it was worth like $500 in mint condition. (laughs) I should have looked at it first. But it was interesting to see, even in Lego's instructions, because that's also just pictograms, how Mm -hmm. they have evolved over the years to be more effective. You know, you wouldn't think that the drawing of put this Lego here could change that much. But even in 25 to 30 years, it was a very different set of instructions. And I was, you know, like so frustrated that they didn't look like the Lego instructions I was used to. But yeah, it's usability testing. Mm-hmm. They have a course in
1: that in the English department in tech communications.
0: Mm, yeah, that makes sense. I think we need to bring rhetorics of instructions into our department. Yeah, just because to, just to I don't look at know.
1: It. We used to make jokes. There's the person that follows the instructions step by step. And then there's the person that looks at it and goes ah, and throws it over their shoulder and puts it together somehow.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And usually the person who follows the instructions comes along behind them afterwards and redoes it the right way without anyone knowing. Yeah. Um, I noticed that you have also um, assisted in multiple theses that have been published. Mm-hmm. Um, and amongst also your publications in general, I'm seeing a little bit of an overlap between the consideration of identity and writing, especially mm-hmm. in your personal publications. Mm-hmm. Um, I could point to some of them. But you had um, cruising composition, text, negotiating sexual difference, and first-year writing readers from the Journal of Conference on College Composition and Communication, um, you had cartography and adoption, identity and difference beyond the politics of the comfort zone from the Review of Education, Pedagogical Cultural Studies um, by Butch and Bardike. Pedagogical performances of class, gender, and sexuality in the Journal of Conference on um, Sorry, the Journal of the Conference on College Composition and Communication. And then for your, some of your theses, you had um, things dealing with gamification. Mm-hmm. in in educational environments and um, technopanic and post-human potential. And so I'm wondering how the overlap works for you in terms of consideration of identity and writing and digital rhetorics. Well, I think, you know, we have to get past, and I think we have to a large extent,
1: the idea that technology makes everyone the same. So when you're in some sort of um, digital space, everyone has the same amount of power. And of course, we found that's not true. Um, everyone doesn't have access to technology is the first problem. And so usually, um, those are the kinds of thesis theses that I agree to work on, are ones where there is some sense of forming identity using technology or inequity because of how technology is set up and how we began using it.
0: Okay. Um, How do you consider digital rhetoric in relation to writing?
1: I don't know. It's hard for me to see it as a separate thing because I don't write on paper anymore. So um, for me, it's just something I grew with as a writer because you know, there, it was more outlets to publish, um, more ways to do things. It's certainly a lot easier to write with word processing than it is to write by hand and then type
0: it, which was my young life. <laughs> and, and that's really hard. I saw an ad the other day for what's in essence a word processor. It's a keyboard with a tiny screen so that you can look and it was like... Distraction-free writing. Here's this product you can buy so that you can write effectively and not be distracted by email or the internet. And I thought, wow, we have really come full circle Mm -hmm. that someone was like, let's invent a keyboard with just a screen and we'll be more productive with it. And it was just such a weird moment because... Before I had a computer, I was gifted a word processor from my dad. He thought it was like this really big moment that I was getting this, like, tool to help me be successful as a student. And I thought, oh, wow, am I, have I been around writing that long that now <laughs> what's old is new again and that word processing is going to be, like, the new thing for writers in distracted and free environments? It was, it was really um, unnerving <laughs> that that is considered the new thing.
1: I still bang too hard on the keyboard. Because I learned how to type on something where you had to do that, because of course typewriter ribbons were expensive, mm-hmm. and um, so you had to get as much out of it as you could, and often that meant bang on the T, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, it's always. Uh, I was talking to a student the other day about um, their their note taking, and you know now they were using you know uh, a tablet, but they were writing you know, on the tablet, not typing, Um, but they could do like, you know, easily change colors, you know, so it was like a a multicolored set of notes, you know, and then, you know, it was her notes and then she would annotate her own notes in a different color. Mm -hmm. But it was just, I mean, it was really cool looking, you know, but it was it was interesting to me how, you know, um, there was preference to, you know, using a a tool, uh, you know, like a pen or, you know, stylus on a on a screen as opposed to like typing things and and so and we've talked about this before too you know students using those different modes and technologies like even things like you know voice to text or you know to to write or produce you know work um and it's interesting to see how that you know kind of affects the content and affects, like, the writing process. I don't know if you've seen similar things with, with upper-level students um, in terms of, like, the composing tools. Um.
1: Yeah. And, and again, though, the thing that I think digital rhetoric needs to look at is the relationship between us and the tool is no different than a pad and a pencil, Okay, we're using it in a sense the same way, um, different, a different technology, but our relationship with the computer is the same when we're word processing. Or is it the same? And that's what I'd like to see people looking at and thinking about. Like, are our students really composing differently? Some studies say no,
0: not at all. I didn't mean to put you on the spot oh, with asking okay. you, but because I do think that the the umbrella digital rhetorics is so capacious because it does consider so many aspects of both the writing composition process, the way that it's interpreted by the technology and the and the means in which it's delivered, the way the reader interacts with that particular delivery. Um and we have talked about this before on the podcast, I've seen an increase in students using talk to text software when they're composing. And I just had this conversation with my class this week saying, if you use talk to text, it's essential that you proofread a little more stringently than you would if you were just writing, because we speak so much differently than we write when we're composing something. And you know, some of them agree, and some of them, you know, look at me like I'm bananas. But that's typical of anything that I say in the classroom. But it—I it, I didn't even realize the difference until I had a student. I was giving them feedback, and I kept this one sentence. Just I couldn't get over it, and I said. Okay, let me read this to you and tell me what we're trying to say here. And I read the sentence. She goes, oh, yeah, I was doing talk to text. That's why that sounds the way it does. And it was like this lightning moment of, of thinking about, oh, wow, yes, there are the really big variations in the way that we're composing given whatever the chosen platform And I do love the study of digital rhetorics because it also allows, like, legitimacy to those literacies that we're talking about that students think are just pastime, but actually they're very nuanced and sophisticated in the way they compose in these variety of digital environments, whether it's sitting doing talk to text, or they're actually composing on a computer, or they're writing on an iPad, or I can't think of the name of the other one that's like an iPad, Um, you know, and how is it being how is it being interpreted and disseminated amongst the mm. people so i think it's 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 an interesting area of rhetorical study and that's why i was curious to hear your thoughts on it because i know you have worked with students in that in that arena before
1: not talk to text is not problem is is that that becomes the step and that's all they do and Until the software, and some of it's better than others, but until it knows your voice, inflections, um, accent, you're going to get all kinds of stuff. And we've had a lot of trouble teaching my mother that with sending texts on her phone. Because suddenly there'll be like a random word in the middle like penis. And then we all call (laughs) each other up and start laughing, you know. But she still hasn't realized that she's got to read it over before she hits send that she's gotta go back there, yeah. you know? Um, and I think that you, they still have to understand that it's a writing process. I mean, it's great that they're using that software, but now go back in and that's your draft, mm-hmm. okay? You talked out your draft, that's great. In the olden days, I used to have <laughs> students who had trouble drafting. I would have them talking to um, a tape recorder and then write down what they had said. I mean, it was a lot of steps. But then they had a draft that they could work with because they just couldn't seem to get a word on the paper.
0: Oh, the pressure of that first word. We've all been there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the the screen is, is just so bright. And what word do you start with? <laughs> you know, um, there's. I think the fun of teaching first year writing is acknowledging the struggle of taking what we have conceptually in our minds through our experience and our command of language and trying to communicate it in a way that is um, effective, depending on the audience, depending on the genre constraints, because, you know, they're taught to demonstrate a very particular skill. K through 12 when it comes to writing and probably haven't ever had the person in the front of the room say yeah this is going to be challenging writing's hard ask anyone who writes writing is hard it's this is not an easy class this is not maybe what you thought it was going to be and,
1: and nobody likes it
0: yeah even writers don't like it Mm-mm. it's like this huge secret that until you get you peek behind the curtain the fact that even writers, have horrible dread and lots of feelings of anxiety, and it's not all just sitting in front of a you know a window in a mountain cabin, like typing away, like you think you're Stephen King or something.
1: Where's the window in the mountain cabin? I don't that's know. I want to. I, wanna I know. keep
0: hoping. That's what I think of. That's my that's my writing place in my mind, like the perfect writing place.
2: Speaking of which, I I wanted to to pivot a little bit to ask you a little bit about your creative writing um, mm-hmm. process and and work. Um, you know, from from the novels to the book, my my copy of your uh, <laughs> book of poetry, "Hard Letters and Folded Wings," um, which I, I, I think I may have told you this in passing before, but "Phantom Limb" is 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 the one that really really uh, stood out to me, and I really just think that's great. Um, and thinking about process and and you know places and things like that. I'm so blown away by poetry a lot because I always want to ask the the, the same question. And since I have a poet here right in front of me, I'll ask it. How do you know when you're done with with, with one? You know, uh, because I think.
1: Well, you revise them to death just like you do everything else. Um, I just ha- I happen to be very good at the final two lines. I don't know why, but that's something that I can close out a poem. Um, sometimes the stuff in the middle is not so good, but I can definitely close out a poem. Um, I think it's when I've said all I want to say about the topic. Um, and you can talk about smaller and smaller topics when you write poetry. So you can take a large experience and then bring it down to, say, one moment. And once you start writing past that moment, then you've lost the poem, if that makes sense.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think, I mean, in, in you know, for, for most poetry, the the economy of poetry means that every word sort of hits, right, in a in a in a way and that's what i think is is kind of the magic of it like you know why those words or or that combination of word that that you know and it won't obviously spark the same mm-hmm. image in every reader or or even from the author but but to me that's where you know i think that the, the tweaking would, might be endless. Oh, it's you know? fun, though.
1: I mean, that's fun. And it's not just, say, the words. It's also the rhythm and the sound of the words and where you put that sound and how sound makes meaning as well. It's so much fun.
0: I never considered the sound portion. Do you read aloud as part of your, your writing process? Yes. Do you ever have anyone else read it for you? No. Okay. Too shy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can, I can understand that. Um, poetry is usually. And,
1: of course, family members always want to know if you're writing about them. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the one time yes. when I did put my mother, it's actually in the cha- chapter in my novel, um, she read it and then didn't even see herself. Wow. And my sisters read it and were like, oh, my God, are you going to publish that? <laughs> <laughs> She's going to kill you. Didn't even see herself.
0: It made sense to me that you have done so much work in constructions of identity and constructions of, you know, the digital spaces as a poet, because you're always... you know that's the kind of the charm, you know, or in drafting a, a screenplay or drafting, um, you know, short works is that you're you're so conscious of those constructions in a different way that then you can take that out into more theoretical approaches. So it seemed like a perfect marriage to me. Looking at your resume, that oh, of course, she's so good at writing about these particular things. There almost seemed to be um, it's a um, like a, a symbiotic relationship almost. I would imagine. Yeah, in
1: some ways it is, in some ways. But they don't always get along, though.
0: No. So, you know,
1: sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. Um, yeah.
2: I, I was going to say, how do you, you know, because I think about, you know, the the sort of our, our minds of it when we're in the moment of creating and then having so much experience looking at text, reading text, interpreting text, analyzing text, Um Do those minds sometimes get in each other's way uh, during the creation process? Because that seems like it could be like a challenge as well. Oh, it is.
1: Because you don't analyze while you're drafting. And you draft a poem the same way you draft an article or an essay. You have to draft it out first. And then the playing happens. And that's when you can let go of that. But it is very hard. Very hard sometimes. And I do like analyze my poems as I'm writing them. But what happens then is by the time I'm done I'm like is that what I wanted to say? <laughs> what was I doing? You know? And since I don't um write literary criticism, I think it's a lot easier for me. I think if I I mean I re- I review books of poetry for people, but I just but I don't do that kind of writing and I think that's much more helpful to me.
0: Like a separation of church and state almost. Yeah. 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 How long have you been um, writing poetry? Since I was five. Oh, wow. Do you still have any of your early work?
1: Oh, yeah. I can still remember my five-year-old poem. Do you want to say one for us? You don't have to, but... The snow is falling all around. It falls on hills and trees. It's falling on the sidewalk, and it even falls on me.
0: Oh, my gosh. Very
1: derivative of Roger Kipling, but, you know... (laughs)
0: But my mom has it. That's why demonstrating I a clear
1: it. gift from an early age, absolutely. Yes. And apparently, I drove a one of the grand my my grandmother's crazy, and she would not sleep in my room because I would sit in my crib and re, repeat things like reindeer, it's raining deer, reindeer, it's raining deer, and that drove her insane. I don't know why, but
2: I think it's almost like a that sounds like word association practice and oh yeah rhyth- mm-hmm. it's rhythmic you know yeah. um mm-hmm. that's interesting one of the things that i noticed um in in glancing through some of the, the the poems in this book and also when i heard you speak at the dr phillips center uh speak or read some of your poetry at the dr phillips center recently is i, I love the way that you talk about deal with bring up Kind of the the construction of memory, right? Mm-hmm. That that we all do and that we all have. Um, can you speak a little bit about why that's so kind of fascinating or, or fun for you to to explore in a lot of your work?
1: To explore my own memories or um, well, well, family
2: I, memories. Yeah. Well, I think in, in in some of those you you include um, like in the poems, but but I think that to me like is something that we can all kind of relate to, you know, because again, it's the, our memories are our stories, um, but they're, you know, definitely all constructed, you know, by us. And so, mm. um, it, it just seems like, um, uh, uh, a really kind of fascinating like topic to, to play with.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I have eight siblings and when we get together and talk about things that happened when we were kids, nobody has the same story because everyone saw their role in what was going on differently. And that always fascinates me, except for my youngest brother, because, you know, a lot of stuff happened before he was born. And he'll say, oh, I remember. And we'll go, no, you weren't born yet. (laughs) And he gets really mad. (laughs) Even now he gets mad and he's 40. Uh (laughs) Um, But I don't blame him. You know, you feel kind of cut out from older kids talking about things. Um, But, yeah, memory's really tricky. It really is, because you don't, remember things like you did a video of what was going on. And even with the video, you only got that little square. There's stuff over here and over here. I remember I wrote about, I don't know if it's in that collection, about a photograph where, you know, people see this moment of my siblings in a photograph and us all standing together, and my mother took the picture, but they didn't know that two seconds afterwards, you know, somebody knocked somebody down, or um, you got mud on your dress, or whatever was going on. And so the picture doesn't tell the story or the process of getting to it, if that makes sense. And so for me, poetry does tell that story and the process of getting to it. And there's also a lot of trying to understand other perspectives. Um, I hated buying shoes when I was a child because we always had to wear brown Oxfords because my father wanted our feet to be safe. And if your feet, you have good feet, you can get anywhere. And so we wore, oh, man, I wanted saddle shoes so bad. Then I wanted loafers. I mean, we're talking up into sixth and seventh grade, if you can imagine this torture. <laughs> and it really hit me when I was older why he did that. So I wrote a poem about it. He wasn't being mean. You know, there was a lot of thought and care that went into that.
0: Mm. And it wouldn't have been shown in a photograph. Yeah. No. Yeah. And who's taking the photograph? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um. So now that you've had a chance to build and and the process of delivering the course you've been really itching to get your hands on for so long, do you have any other ideas or areas that you would like to develop in terms of things that you want to teach or have that opportunity for? Gee, wow. No one ever asked me that. Um,
1: no, seriously. It's like, here, teach this. <laughs> well, here, now here's your chance to, I, to put I it just out there. Make it my own. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wouldn't mind teaching a class that took the rhetorical triangle through the centuries mm. because now I'm thinking when you know you talk about digital rhetoric, one of the things I've noticed because people comment and then people comment about the comments. Is that that sort of, you know, where you have the writer and the reader, that they're moving closer and closer together. So the triangle is not an equilateral triangle anymore the way we usually draw it. So I think that would be really cool. Or to make a video like that about that would be really neat.
0: Yeah, think about like if Benjamin Franklin was trying to write his autobiography now and putting it on the Internet, you know, versus uh – having all that feedback from people Mm -hmm. versus being that standalone he's always i i use him as a as a reference because to me he's he's what you point to in terms of like at least american autobiography he's like he's the he's the start Mm -hmm. you know and that idea of speaker versus reader um and what that relationship would have been like now and what might that mean to the text or the importance of the text versus when it was drafted
1: yeah And even how novelists break things up into chapters because if you think in the 19th century, people read a chapter at a time because they could take a chapter out of the library um, or it was in a magazine. Mm -hmm. And so everything had to end in a way that would make you want to read the next one Mm -hmm. and that sort of cliffhanger thing. But it really happened because of how the texts were produced not necessarily because the writers wanted to do that, but it was you've got to create readers, and you have to have readers that are going to follow you and stay with you. Um, in so many ways, writers shape their their readership, you know, and lead them to expect certain things.
2: It sounds like how streaming shows now that come out once a week are, you know, <laughs> know they have to keep you, you know, coming back for the, for the next one. Um we are uh, closing in on our time for this episode. So I was wondering, um, what is it that you're excited about? What are you working on, um, you know, maybe in your own writing that, that you'd maybe like to mention or, or talk about that that's sort of on the horizon for you that, yeah. that you're excited about? Well,
1: I've got two, two sort of collections of poems I'm writing. Wow. Um, one is about um, Marie Curie and kind of turning her into a, like a real person that has dinner and stuff, you know, instead of the first wonderful, brilliant woman scientist. And then it goes into what happens to her um, discovery. And I, um, the rest of the book is about the radium girls in, oh. in Waterbury and Newark and Orange and Ottawa, Illinois. Um, and then the other book I'm trying to write about is because I, I suffer from anxiety and clinical depression. And trying to think about when it started, and it really did start when I was a child, and sort of writing about that journey in poems, but that's been really hard because sometimes I start doing it and I get depressed, so I have to yeah, it's a lot of emotional labor. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I think it would be valuable for people to see.
0: Well, again, that's representation, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's mm-hmm. making. Yes, it's hard to be the one person to put it out there, or be that 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 icon. Or well, other people have. I yes. mean, but
1: I don't know if anyone's done a poetry collection about it. Right. So that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Right. Wow. Fantastic. Well, we can't wait to hear how that goes. Well, hopefully it gets done. <laughs> <laughs> However, I can Sherpa for you. I, All I'm right. there for it. All I'll right. cheerlead, whatever you need. Thank you so much for joining us. It oh, was well, thank you for having a me. a delight having this conversation with you. Um, you know, we get to pass in the hallway a lot, but we don't often get to just sit down and talk for an uninterrupted amount of time. So thank you again for joining us.
2: Um, thanks for your time, and thanks, everyone, for listening.
0: Well, thanks for having me.